This is Ron Friedman, and you're listening to Leader Lab. So who are you and what do you do? I'm Ron Friedman. I'm a social psychologist and I specialize in human motivation. And I'm the author of a new book called The Best Place to Work, The Art and Science of Creating an Extraordinary Workplace. And Ron, you you are one of my favorite types of people, mostly because I'm in we're cut from a very similar cloth. Um, you are an academic who knows that they'll have a bigger impact outside of the academy, um, which I think is a really interesting story. And the book, the book, the best place to work, which we're going to be talking about today, is uh, I think a really good attempt at that. But let's let's talk about that because you actually say in the book that this entire path is an accident. Um, so, uh, I think, I think you're genius for that accident, but tell me a little bit about that accident and how this book came out of a happy accident. Well, thanks for the kind words. Uh, yeah, I, uh, I was a social psychologist and studied human motivation in the lab and taught at colleges and universities for a number of years. And then I went off into the corporate world. I got into this academic position and it was always, it had always been my dream to get this full-time professorship. And when I got there, I found myself itching for a new challenge. So I decided I'm going to go off into the corporate world where I was hired as a pollster. And it was in that experience of being in the corporate world that I noticed something really unexpected. And that is that there is a massive divide between what the latest science and the modern workplace. Everything from the way that companies hire to the way that managers motivate to the basic design of the modern office appeared blind to a wealth of research. And it wasn't for a lack of effort or a lack of interest. Every business owner I know wants a great company. Uh, the trouble is, is that all of the all of the insights are buried beneath layers of academic jargon. So I wrote The Best Place to Work as a means of making the latest uh, insights accessible to business folks and actionable. Now, and the, the, the loyal folks who have been listening to this podcast for a long time, all, all five prior seasons or not, uh, know that, that that is Leader Lab's language, like literally right there. Yeah, there's this huge divide, and the problem is that the research is not necessarily actionable. And with that, we have this book, um, The Best Place to Work. And what I think is awesome about it, too, is how, uh, and this is a vein that I'm, I'm exploring now, as you know, is how counterintuitive a lot of that research uh, becomes, right? So we, we think we know about how to build a great workplace. And then the research tells us stuff that's entirely entirely different from what we would think. Like, for, for example, one of the most strikingly counterintuitive things that I remember reading in the book is essentially the lessons that we can learn about building a happy work office environment, a happy workplace from casinos, which I uh, don't exactly picture as the paragon of happy people. I mean, it's a place where people go to lose money. Uh, and although somehow they lose money and are happy about it. But then inside how they design a, a casino is the secrets to how to design happy, a happy workplace. Yeah, so what, ha- what casinos do is that they, their entire raison d'etre is, is to create to, um, a, a risk-taking mindset. They want people taking risks, and the reason they want people taking risks is because that's when they gamble. And so the way they do that is by embedding all these psychological triggers that put people in a risk-taking mindset. So they bombard us with flashing lights and blaring sounds. They ply us with alcoholic beverages. They build these slot machines that make it feel like we're winning when really we're not. They have a lot of close uh, losses. And then they create these the psychological distance between p- customers and their money. Uh, you know, you don't 
take out a $20 bill every time you want to gamble. And it used to be coins. Now it's this card that you use. And so it doesn't feel like real money. And what we can learn, what, what organizations can learn from a casino is that mindset is not an accident. That if you want people thinking a certain way, you can embed psychological triggers into your experience that put them in that mindset. And so in the book, I talk about all of these happiness insights that we have in the literature over the last few years that organizations can embed into their experiences. And I'll give you some examples of those. One is this idea that experiences are more rewarding than objects. So we have all this research that shows if you're going to be spending money on yourself, for example, uh, if you have $1,000 going away on a vacation, a short weekend vacation, uh, it's probably going to yield more happiness return on investment than buying yourself a big screen TV. And in part, it's because uh, material objects tend to degrade over time, but memories for events tend to improve over time. And so the way that organizations can incorporate that insight into creating a, a more positive, optimistic mindset in the workplace is investing in experiences for employees by sending them to conferences or investing in, the, in social events. These are the things that ultimately guide our impressions of a workplace if we have all of these positive events, we tend to be happier at work. You know, what I think is fascinating about that too, when you think about experiences is I, um, you know, so I cut my teeth in, in sales in a past life. I, I carried around a bag and, and sold uh, drugs out of the back of my car, actually. Uh, I was one of those <laughs> pharmaceutical reps. And uh, one of the things that you find in almost any sales organization is the in, the big incentive, right? Obviously, there are bonuses and commissions or whatever, but the big incentive is always a trip. And it's funny to me because you think like, oh, it's a trip and experiences are better than rewards. But but I almost feel like that trip is done in such a way that it's used as that incentive when in reality what you could be doing is building a mindset across everybody with exactly what you said, shared experiences, going to conferences, things that bring sort of everybody together instead of sort of holding it out, dangling even the experience as your sort of traditional carrot and stick incentive. Well, the other thing that it does is it feeds our psychological needs for relatedness and connectedness with others. And so this is a basic, we have decades of research showing that people have a basic psychological needs for feeling connected to others in a meaningful way. And it's something that's surprisingly overlooked in a lot of organizations. They leave uh, friendships to chance. It's kind of like, okay, we're going to provide you with a computer and a desk and an incentive at the end of the year. And whether or not you connect to your colleagues, that's something that's kind of, we're, we're hoping that happens, but we don't really do anything to make sure that it does. And in the book, I talk about specific things that organizations can do to apply some of the research on what it is that takes strangers and turns them into a community. And uh, it's something I think a lot of organizations would do well to think about because when we feel connected to our colleagues, we're a lot more motivated to do a good job because if we um, if we make a mistake or if we if we don't put in as much effort as we should, now we're not just letting down our manager, but we're letting down our friends. Oh yeah, no, totally. I I totally agree. I you know you think about I think I actually think this was mentioned in like the very first episode of The Office, right? Or the very first season of The Office when you have this realization that okay, so we have 168 hours in a week, right? Assuming you actually get eight hours of sleep, which most people brag about not, but that's a whole other diatribe. But you should be, you know. So now we're down to 112. Now we're down to basically an average, I think, white collar salaried position. We're down to spending 40 to 50% of your waking week around total strangers. And and it's shocking to me that, yeah, like you said, we leave community building sort of to chance. But in reality, you're going to see... You're going to see your family, hopefully, you're going to see your family most, your coworkers second, and then your actual friends, quote unquote, are, get a minority of your time every week. Right. right if right. they get any at all. 
Yeah, and I can talk for a long time about the benefits of friends in the workplace. So we talked about how uh, greater motivation because now you don't want to let down your fellow colleagues, but it's also a turnover issue. So for a lot of organizations, you know, uh, commitment to an organization or loyalty to an organization, that may have been something that was a possibility 20 to 30 years ago. But in today's uh, workplace, you know, I think particularly after 2009, a lot of employees have that realization that there is no loyalty at work, but when there's loyalty to, to friends or colleagues, you want to stay working at a place for a longer period of time. In addition to that, it's like basic productivity things. So we're a lot more effective because uh, we pay less attention to whether or not we're fitting in. We can pay more attention to our actual work. We're more comfortable pointing out to our colleagues when they're going down the wrong path. And we're more willing to ask for help ourselves. So there are all of these um, concrete benefits to having friends at work. And I think for a lot of managers, there's that idea that if you have uh, colleagues who are close friends, that they're going to gossip or they're going to fool around, when in reality, there's a business case for creating deeper friendships in the workplace. Yeah, totally, totally. And that's, I think it's one of the really counter, one of the many counterintuitive things in the book. The other one that I really harped in on. So this is, you know, we've been thinking about a, a team, an individual contributor or, or a team of people. And I want to shift a little bit into that, that sort of leadership role, because you find a lot of really interesting insights for leaders and managers from the research. One of my favorites being what you called a, a basically the leadership paradox, this idea that uh, we tend to think about leadership and power as sort of synonymous, but in reality, the leaders that sort of hoard the most power end up with the least productive team underneath them instead of sharing that power and getting a more productive team. Yeah, that, that's right. And it's, it's again, it comes down to basic psychological needs. So we all have a basic psychological need for autonomy. So that means feeling choiceful in the work that you do. So if you're working underneath a manager who's a micromanager and who likes to really um, control every aspect of the work, that might lead to short-term gains in performance because now you're going you're gonna to follow the instructions as you're told and you're probably going to be very accurate in doing that. But over the long term, that's going to have a cost to your engagement. So in the book, I have this quote that says, micromanagement is the motivational equivalent of buying on credit. You get a good product now, but pay a hefty price for it later. So as a manager, if you're micromanaging and you're being forceful and controlling in the way that you lead your team, that's going to hurt you in the long run because if you're thinking about sustainable engagement, ultimately, you're undermining people's need for autonomy. Yeah, I think totally. And, and you know, I think that's something we don't have. Um, you know, I think back to like Dan Pink's uh, drive, which is really sort of regurgitation of self-determination theory. We've, we've known for decades this idea of autonomy, and yet we feel like it's the job of the leader to strip other people of autonomy and tell them their best way to sort of do things, which is um, I don't know, maybe that worked back when we were just shoveling coal and creating widgets, but it certainly doesn't seem like it's it's cutting mustard anymore. It's not. And you know what? I think uh, something that often gets lost is that as a manager, and I can tell you this, you know, as having, having had that experience myself, it's hard to be autonomy supportive. It's not that you don't want to be autonomy supportive, but you often know the best approach to implementing a particular project. And so to say to an employee, here's our goal, and I'm going to invite you to suggest the best process for implementing this, that takes a significant amount of self-control. 
And the way that we need to think about it is as an investment. And I talk in the book about Warren Buffett and his, uh, his style of management about how he, he keeps his afternoons clear so his direct reports can contact him. And he, he really does a, a, a good job of distancing himself from the day-to-day minutiae, tries to instruct very rarely, and asks clarifying questions in his conversations with his direct reports. And he does it because it instills this feeling of ownership, which, which he sees as an investment. And I think we, we all could use a lot of that. Um, some of that long-term thinking when it comes to motivation in the workplace because it, it is very hard to take that long-term thinking and not be micromanaging when you know the best way of, of implementing an approach. Well, and, and the other thing that I saw was, and you said it yourself about leaving um, leaving some time for his direct reports, but also sort of not trying to get into the minutia. I think there's a connection between, you have, you have two chapters in there, leader, what you call the leadership paradox, but then there's this other chapter for managers about, you know, we, we so often think the manager's job is to focus on every individual person, make sure they individual, but you actually say that the managers take, who take more time to focus on themselves perform better. And you, in a sense, you can only have that time to focus in on yourself when you have given away some of that uh, um, power, when you've given people their own autonomy so that you have that time for yourself. Right, and and I talk about it in the in the in this idea of how does culture happen in the workplace, and it's really the function of the leaders. They're the ones who establish the group norms. Culture is really about what are the social norms of a group of people, and it's the behavior of the managers that really establishes that culture. So it's not, you know, the mission statement or the set of values that you put on your wall, but ultimately it comes down to the behavior of the managers, and and, and that gets mimicked. By others, and part of it is a is a non-conscious process. As human beings, we're born with a brain that's designed to mimic other people, and in part, it's also because lower status group members seek to align themselves with folks at the top, and the way they do that is by behaving in similar ways. And so, leadership behaviors ultimately shapes the organizational culture. Yeah, and I think the the more that I study organizational leadership as a whole, the more that I feel like. I'm, I'm, and in some regards, I'm a leadership agnostic, right? Because I think we over-attribute to individual leaders success that's really attributed by the organization. But leaders do have a few levers that only they can pull. And I think uh, who you bring into the organization is one, the systems you put in place. But the biggest lever that they have to pull is exactly that, culture. And how you set up and establish that culture and what that reinforces is really – and it's also, to think back to the paradox, it's also the way you can give people autonomy and know and trust them and know that they will – perform well in autonomy is that you've set up the culture ahead of time so that when they get the autonomy, they know what to do with it. Right. And one of the studies that I talk about in the book, and, and as I mentioned before, you know, this is a book that really takes thousands of studies and tries to summarize them in a way that is manageable for folks. One of the studies that I found really interesting is one by, conducted by MIT professor Edgar Schein, and he looked at what are the behaviors that define a culture. And he identifies a few things, and some of them include uh, what the leaders pay attention to and what they ignore. And it's again, it's not a conscious process, but when you're in a room with a leader and you are looking at what is it that he's paying attention to in terms of, uh, you know, parts of the monthly report that are really grabbing his or her attention, that's going to lead you and send a, a, a message about this is something that I need to focus on as well. The other thing is the emotional outbursts of a leader. So when a, when a leader loses his or her cool, that sends a signal of this is important. You need to pay attention to this. And also what they reward. And so it, and reward doesn't just mean bonuses. It also means reward with attention. So if you're in a room with a leader and he or she is, is um, asking you more questions about a particular aspect of your work, that's going to send a signal that this is what I'm doing here is critical. And 
and uh, all the other stuff maybe isn't quite as important. So what Edgar Schein talks about, and I mentioned in the book, is that leaders don't have a choice about whether or not to communicate. The only thing they control is what they communicate. Yeah, totally. As, as I remember from my freshman uh, or oral communication class years and years and years ago, you can't not communicate, right? Which is poor grammar, but a wonderful lesson for <laughs> leaders. And what you do communicate sort of shapes that culture. No, I'm, I'm a huge fan of, of Shine's research, his work on culture. In fact, actually, uh, I owe you a bit of a favor, or I owe you a bit of a thank you. You did me an awesome favor. Uh, yours is the first book to put me and Shine on the same page. Uh, in the endorsement page, there's, <laughs> there's my endorsement of the book and then Shine's. I think that's awesome. That's probably the only time I will ever rank uh, with his contributions to uh, workplace and leadership, et cetera. So thank you for that. It's one one more reason I love the book. So um, the book, again, The Best Place to Work, The Art and Science of Creating an Extraordinary Workplace. Ron, you know what comes next because uh, you've been a longtime Leader Lab listener, which is awesome. It's cool, really cool to have you on the show. So you know what comes next. We have two questions for you. Uh, the first being, what are you reading right now? Well, I'll tell you what I just finished. I just finished a, uh, a book by – it's a novel. I don't know if anyone's mentioned a novel on, uh, on uh, Leader Lab before. But Ian McEwan's uh, The Children Act. And it's uh, – Ian McEwan is one of my favorite writers and uh, one of the uh, – the uh, terrible ironies of being a writer is that you have very little time to read. And so now that the book has come out, came out last week, I took the weekend to read a novel. And uh, in part, it's you know, part of the justification for taking time off to read a novel is this recent research that shows that we become better at empathy when we read novels. And uh, already I'm seeing a, a tremendous impact, and it was great to read that novel. So I highly recommend it. You know what's funny? Uh, actually, a lot of people will say they read they read certain fiction. A lot of times, it's mystery novels or uh -huh. science fiction novels. But a lot of people will say that they read um, a lot of fiction and don't read sort of all of these different business books. Uh, but no one has ever given me the science behind why that works. So, <laughs> well done there. And now, now the book is the book is out. Uh, I would say, as I say often on the podcast, it's by no means launched. There's a lot of work to do spreading this message, which we happily contribute. But there's, you've got a lot of work ahead of you in in spreading the science of how to build an extraordinary workplace. Um, but beyond that, it makes me wonder what's what's next for you. What questions are you looking at on the horizon? What's next for you? Well, you know, that really is the focus for me. This year is going to be all about speaking and consulting around the book. And as you mentioned, you know, an author's job, it used to be the case, I think at one point, you wrote a book and then the uh, publisher took care of it and that was it. You were done. You were off to write your next book. But that's not the way it works right now. And, um, and that's a good thing from my perspective because it gives me the opportunity after spending all that time writing of getting in front of people and telling them about the ideas and how they can implement it in their companies. So that's something I'm looking forward to doing. Yeah, and you know what's funny? I've found that, um, as I'm sure you have, that a book is never finished; it's just published. And so the you know the book is published, but the conversations around the book and the things that you'll learn from other people as you spread the message keep going. There's there's stuff already in mind. We're only a year out that I already am like, oh, I could have said this better. Now that I'm aware of this this idea, and so I'm I'm sure you will find that. And in in that light, actually, as people read the book, how can they get a hold of you to uh, share with that? So help you keep the book alive, as it were. Uh, Ignite 80 is the name of my company, uh, Ignite and the number 80. And the reason we called it Ignite 80 is because uh, what the research tells us is that over 80% of uh, people in the workplace uh, globally are disengaged at work or are not fully engaged at work. And so the mission of Ignite 80 is to correct that. And we do that by uh, speaking and consulting and running workshops. So if you visit Ignite80.com, you can also sign up on my mailing list and receive articles when I publish them on Harvard Business Review and Fast Company and places like that. 
Oh, awesome. Very cool. So Ignite 80, but also check out the book. The book is the best place to work, the art and science of creating an extraordinary workplace. Ron, uh, I've been looking forward to this book coming out for a while. As you know, I got to read an early copy. So it's exciting to see it out. Thanks for talking with us, letting us help spread the message. So thank you for joining us inside the Leader Lab. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Hey everybody, it's Dave. Thanks for listening to the whole episode. If you want more, go to davidberkus.com slash podcast. And check out my friend Sean Murphy's Work That Matters podcast. Go to switchandshift.com and click Work That Matters podcast. Check it out.